Welcome to Hillhurst United Church, the podcast. We're really glad you're here. Whoever you are, wherever you're at, join us on the journey. I don't know about you, but I think it's kind of funny these days about how we're creating phrases to identify different groups or people. And when I first heard the word ecofeminism, I had to giggle to myself and try to understand what that was. So then yesterday I was thinking, we do this all the time, and I'll invite you to see this list. This is, these are words related to this. So you might say, I'm not an ecofeminist, I'm a bioharmony. No, you might say, I'm not that, I'm a Gaia seeker. Oh no, I'm an echo warrior. No, I'm an echo prodigy or a green luminary or an earth sentinel. This made me giggle. I thought it was quite funny how we do this. We do this all the time in our world to distinguish and create groups around one thing. And it might, so you can take that down now, you might feel that that's what happens when you hear the word echo-feminism as one, echo-mysticism. You say, what the heck is that and who is an echo-feminist, echo-mysticist? These words create groups and they create an intention and an identity and they're a good thing. They help people focus. And so when echo-mysticism came up as a topic that we might use as a group this year to begin our series, we gathered looking at echo-mysticism. And we gathered three leaders, Robin Gailey here, and Sarah Arthurs, who's here, and Liz Reese, who will do tomorrow. Could you please take that down? It's driving me crazy. (laughs) What's so amazing was Robin was in Nova Scotia, You click on, you pick up a few people in Mississauga and Toronto and rural Alberta, and then the group ends with somebody in Squamish. And we come together for an hour and a half to understand what is echo-mysticism. And in the first week, Robin helped us understand a key concept to be a follower of Jesus these days. And the phrase is panentheism. Panentheism is a phrase to to describe who people are as panentheists. Panentheist means everything in God, pan-theism, panentheism, everything in God. And so what panentheism says is that God is both beyond us in mystery, but also present to us in our bodies. So we trust that the sacred is beyond us, unknown, and also known within us. And in a beautiful conversation, people began to imagine, what does that mean for us if we imagine that God is not up there dancing on the clouds, but present in the person you pass in the street or see in television or sit beside in a pew? And what does it say to you as a human being when you think the divine is holding birth and life in you? What does that do and say to how you live and operate in the world? And so panentheism is indeed, I believe, who we are. It invites us to see the mystery but also to go inside and to see the mystery. And in the second week, we were looking at the fact that there are two creation stories, which I read for you a moment ago. The first that says that human's job is to dominate, to have dominion over the earth. And the second story says, no, it's about cultivating and taking care of the earth. And so when you look at the Hebrew scriptures, it's always good to go to a Hebrew to find out the connection and the understanding. And so I'm going to invite you to a short conversation I had with Rabbi Laura from Vancouver School of Theology. She answers this question, why are there two creation stories and what do they mean for us as panentheists? So settle back and cross your fingers and hope this interview comes up.
Okay, Rabbi Laura, it's so great to uh, check in with you from Calgary to Vancouver School of Theology. Uh, thanks for being with us. Our rabbi is the Director of Religious Interreligious Studies and uh, Professor of Jewish Studies at Vancouver School of Theology, so welcome. Thanks, John. It's great to be here with you and the congregation virtually. Great, great. Well, as we begin, I just want to say on our behalf and behalf of all people uh, in Israel that we hold you and your families and, and community in prayer at this very difficult time uh, in Israel. So thank you for taking time. I'm sure you're a busy person, not just with students, but uh, also the worries of the world. So thank you for being with us today. We appreciate that and amen to your prayers for peace. Amen. We're in a series at the church on eco-mysticism, and we're looking at the connection between uh, the divine creator and uh, nature and our role within it. And the first question for me is, uh, I know in the Hebrew scriptures, there's two creation stories. Why is that? There could be many answers to why there are two creation stories. The simplest is that there were many creation stories floating around, and people who were editing the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, tried to find a place for all of the different traditions. That's one kind of answer. Another kind of answer is that in Genesis, someone deliberately placed them side by side so that we could look at multiple different ways of being in our world. And you see the first creation story in Genesis 1 is very orderly, very idealistic. Everything is interdependent. Everything has its place. It's as if God has a plan. The second creation story is the world trying to find its way and God trying to figure out what to create when and literally just getting right there down and dirty into the dirt and making things with divine hands, sort of creating bit by bit by bit. And these are two very different visions of what the world is like and how we find our way in it. I love that there are two uh, creation stories that they that they're different and um, their emphasis is different. And I love the whole the Bible holding those together. I believe it's in the first creation story. They use the word dominion. What does that word mean in Hebrew, and how do you interpret that word? The Hebrew word is redu. They will uh, dominate or rule over, or as it works best in English have dominion. It is a word that in the Hebrew Bible, it definitely means dominate or have dominion and not in a good way. So that's a really, really shocking word for the text to use in this uh, blessing toward humans or description of what human life will be like. And it's especially shocking since the rest of the Hebrew Bible does not describe a path where people are supposed to dominate the earth, right? There are images of God as different animals, particularly the eagle. There are sabbaticals for the land. There are laws about fair treatment of working animals. So it's a very shocking word, and commentators find that they have to interpret it. Why is it there? And the most common and well-known interpretation is that there's a shocking word, right? Dominate the earth. And then the, sorry, dominate the earth. 
as an invading ruler might dominate a country. But then one of the major themes as the Bible goes forward is what is it to be a good ruler? What is it to be a bad ruler? Mm. We have paradigms of terrible ruling. For example, in the Pharaoh stories, the prophetic critique of imperial rule and then we have examples of kings who take in refugees and try to create a world that's safe for the people. So it starts out with a shocking word, and then it says, but this is how you live into creation in a way that is not like that. So in the second uh, story, I believe the, the phrase I love is it's not dominion, it's it sounds like cultivate and take care of in the second story. Is that accurate? Yes, the second, it's even more profound than that or powerful than that because the word in Hebrew is la'avod, which means to work the earth, but it also means to serve the earth in the sense of view it as divine and act toward it as if it is holy. All the earth is your sacred land. Okay, that's great. And when you think of echo mysticism, which we're looking at, we've been talking about how mysticism invites us to, to not other the earth, but actually see us as part of creation. And the United Church Creed, it says, to live with respect in creation. Do you have a sense in which uh, we are we are moving and living in a time that's maybe recovering the old, but has a sense in which we see ourselves as part of creation in creation rather than dominion over, but rather part of, of the trees, the oceans, the, the mountains, the streams? What's your take on that? Well, I hope that we are living into such a time. I know that in Canada, because of activities of reconciliation, uh, people who are not Indigenous and people who are Indigenous and recovering their ancestry, we have a unique opportunity to learn together about what it can be like to live with sustainability and reverence and know that you are sustained by the land. How can you sustain yourself by uh, taking just what you need to live and then promoting the shared life on the land? So I think that's one way in which we're moving toward it. I think another way in which we're moving toward it, and this is, of course, my bias and my hope, is that there's a ton of scientific research about animal intelligence and animal societies. And we have the chance now to look at other species with a spiritual understanding that the creator gave different kinds of wisdom to different kinds of species. And we have the opportunity to learn what are some of those wisdoms and to be in a space with other creatures with a different kind of receptivity and openness to learn from them. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule and uh, blessings to you. Thank you so much. Hello. Echoing said shalom and Thank salam. You. So Laura will be back uh, with us in January, just a little commercial. In January, we're having four weekends 
with a Saturday morning lecture and a Sunday morning with a professor from Vancouver School of Theology. And she's going to do uh, some work on her research around the animals in the Bible. So we are so lucky to have this uh, theological school so close to give you the best and most recent theology in what I would call good religion. But what you heard in Laura there is this understanding of the two stories and how they're different and why. And what it does for us, I think, is it takes us out of the center. We live in an anthropocentric world, big fancy word to say we think we're it. But when we spread it out and say, no, we are just part of it all, we are living in creation, it reorients us about how we see and view creation and our place in it. It reorients us. And the second evening, Sarah Arthurs from our church invited us to think about this definition about what it means to be an echo-mysticist. She goes, I think a mystic is someone who periodically and or pervasively has a sense of being part of something more than themselves, of being more alive, who feels the imminence of the good intentions of the universe, who feels connected, known, and integrated with a gen within a generative and loving force. This love is both within them and outside them. You see that pantheistic beyond and within. She says, echo mystics have a delicious sense of thisness. There's a good word for you. Thisness of things, which has nothing to do with them. A sense of how everything and every manifestation of life has its own story, its own trajectory of lifefulness, and the death and death, its own innate beauty, integrity, and worth. So this echo mysticism is inviting us to flatten it, I will say, not in a bad way, but to see the equality that the second creation story calls us to. See it tomorrow night at 7. So what, do you, what does this mean for us if we move beyond these, this class and what we're learning about this? I always go to the Franciscans, to Richard Rohr, as you know. And what they help me see and understand in how our theological world goes is something like this. St. Francis had a sense of simplicity and connection to nature, which we are recovering in his story. And Franciscan alternative orthodoxy emphasizes mysticism over morality. Do you get that? Religion that's about mysticism, not morality. A lot of people see religion about getting people to be nice, really nice. Has nothing to do with theology, actually. You see, moralism is the task of a low-level religion concerned with creating an ego identity that seemingly places on us on a higher ground. But you see, religion is not about perfectionism because perfectionism always leads to individualism. My life, my way, don't care about you or anyone else. But really, good religion invites you beyond the individual into connection. So mysticism is about those sacred connection. This quote, the single biggest heresy that allows us to misinterpret the scriptural tradition is individualism, revealed now in the problems we are facing with climate change, pollution, the loss of biodiversity, and the extinction of many species. We became so anthropocentric, us at the center, and self-referential that we thought God cared about every living creature not about every living creature, nor about the new heaven and the new earth. The call is to connection. 
to finally see brother sun, sister moon, brothers wind and air, sister water, brother fire, and through our sister mother earth. This is the call of echo mysticism, to see ourselves in and part of it. It's no wonder when I ask the question, where do you feel most connection? Without showing hands, I know many people would say, it is often in creation. Because we evolved to such a place where we know that when we were in connection, in creation, we feel something greater than ourselves. Karl Rahner says this great quote, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or no Christian at all. And so you are a mystic whether you know it or not. And if you do connect in nature, then you are experiencing this most fully. So given I've said all of that, let me make this quite practical for you in three quick ways. I was walking down my street this week. It had been a bad day. The bad day started early. And I was going into lots of problems and lots of meetings. And I'm walking my dog down the street. And as I'm walking my dog down the street, I feel like I'm sinking down, feeling lower and lower. And then I hear this beautiful chickadee that goes, and I stopped. And I thought, hmm. And I started to walk when I heard, and so then I stopped for about 30 seconds and I went, and it went, and it was in that moment that I just smiled to myself and waved wherever it was and continued to walk. And as I continued to walk, I suddenly saw what was ice pellets all covered all over a tree. And I thought, this is so beautiful. And of course, I reached for my camera. Thank God it didn't work. And I just gazed at the beautiful light shining on these crystals in this tree. And then I turned the corner and I came across this fabulous, brilliant, burning bush of red hedge. And then I turned the next corner and I saw these beautiful petunias covered in snow. But in that moment, in that very short walk, it was like zoom, I was connected. And suddenly I came to the dog walk and my shoulders were back and I was happy as could be because I felt for a moment a connection that restored me. That's what echo mysticism does. It records you and sends you to your core and you know you're connected and the stuff falls away and you center for a time. Number two, I have a group of guys I get to get to go with once in a while to have a beer and talk about ministry. One is Brian, a retired minister from the Anglican Church, St. Stephen's, and another is Murray, who is the minister at Parkdale. And we get together to talk about life. Two of them are retired, I am not. And we sit there and I hear their stories of all they're doing. But this time, Brian got there a bit early and he told me about a retreat that he was on this past summer. As he has come out of ministry, one of the things about Brian is that he's given up on church. And he knows this because I say, I don't get this. You have this ministry, you do all this work and you retire and you stop. And I heard him say to me at one point in one of the conversations, I don't miss church, but what I miss is meaningful connection in a bigger conversation. 
which is, I think, what we try to do in church. But then he talked about this summer as he was coming out of his ministry and into his retirement. He wanted to understand who he was and what he should do. And he got connected to the Animus Institute in the U.S., which sends people into nature as they retire or various stages in life to figure out their call. And so he told me about one trip he did last summer and the one this past summer. And the past summer, as he leaned forward in his chair to tell me about, was amazing. Brian has this beautiful silver hair and he's filled with passion as he tells this story about what it was like to carry his own backpack up into the mountains in Colorado. And there he is on his solo retreat. And then as he sent off by himself into the wilderness to reconnect with the soul of the earth, he wakes up one morning and he steps out into the wilderness by himself and he hears this word in his head and it's behold. And he says to himself, I'm to behold. And he moves around in his time of the day and beholding all around him. And then the second word comes to him and that second word is bless. And for whatever reason, and Brian's a rational guy with a big brain, you'd never think this of him. He realizes he's got a bless. And so he sees a tree and he goes over and he says, bless you, thank you. And another one, bless you, thank you. And he gets down on his knees, bless you, thank you. He sees an old stump and he says, bless you, thank you. And everywhere he goes, he hears another, oh, I don't want to forget you, bless you. And he's saying to himself, I can't believe I'm doing this. I'm blessing the trees. And then he comes to one tree toward the end of the path, a big old tree where someone has carved the word Jesus, 1972. And he thinks back to 1972 when he was in Youth for Christ. And it was a pivotal time, but also a terrible time of theology in his life. And he's upset about it. I said to him, I would be upset. It's like someone has taken this beautiful tree and carved Jesus in it. The skin of the tree carved with a knife. That's the way we stamp things, right? Carve them in a tree. Anyway, he said it was an amazing experience of being one with the trees. And the final part, the next day, he wakes up and he's going for a walk. And he can't believe it. He comes down to the stream and the water and he says to himself, I have to baptize. And he strips down completely naked and goes into the stream and sits in the bottom of the stream and he pours water over his head. And he feels this sense of ritual, of baptism. And he knows when he comes out of the woods, they're going to ask him, what is your name? Because when you're baptized, there's a name. We always say, what is the name of this child? It's a renaming as Christian. He says to himself, my name is Silverhair. <laughs> he said, that was part of my journey. And he says, I realize now at this stage in my life is to do less, to behold and to bless everything in my midst. It's a passionate, beautiful story he's written about, which we'll share in this community. But do you see how when you get into nature and you're by yourself and you're alone, you suddenly see yourself in relationship to the earth, not over it, carving your name in it, but actually blessing it? That's what it means to be an echo mystic. The last is this, and I've told you this story before, but it speaks to this for me because I truly believe it at my core. When I was at Princeton uh, Seminary in 1988, there was a great preacher from New York who was there teaching and his wife. And this great preacher was quite embarrassed about his wife because she was getting Alzheimer's. 
and he would literally hold her and walk her into the dining room and he would literally be clutching her, but occasionally she would get away from him and she would get away from him and come up to people and look you right in the eye and say, we're all a part of it and find somebody else and say, we're all a part of it and somebody else, we're all a part of it. And while he was embarrassed for her, she was speaking beautiful wisdom that comes, I think, in that fine line in our mind that's wonder and reality. Because the truth of echo mysticism is we are all a part of it. We are. We're all a part of it. The waters, the rivers, the plants, the trees, the animals, the people, we're all a part of it. And if we get that, it means we reorient how we live in and on the planet. And I believe that's what echo mysticism's gift is to us. So just remember this week, we're all a part of it, every one of us, all of us. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to Hillhurst United Church, the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode and are thinking about someone who might enjoy it too, we invite you to send it their way and help the podcast grow. We're really glad you're here and we'd love to know what you thought about today's sermon. Leave us a review in iTunes or send us an email at communications at hillhurstunited.com. We'd love to hear from you.